Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, hello, and welcome to Mapping the College Edition a podcast where we explore the landscape of the college theater world and try to demystify this daunting audition process. I am your host, Charlie Murphy, director of MTCA. That's Musical Theater College Auditions. And today we've got my old friend, Kate Hamill, regional theater queen and a phenomenal playwright on the show. And we're going to talk about her journey and her process of making work. I think you really enjoy it. For those in MTCA land, congrats on a great October mock last Sunday. It was a truly great one, really talented group of students, and I'm going to say our coaches were on fire. I really was, uh, I had a great time hanging out with all of them, and I think they were really on their game. Um, We all head off to Pittsburgh this week for Pittsburgh Unified, so I look forward to seeing many of you there if you listen to these episodes when they drop, and if not, I enjoyed seeing you there last week or two weeks ago or whenever it is. Or if I didn't enjoy it, I probably pretended to. Shall we get to the episode? No more delay. I did a really long takeaway at the end, so let's just do a short intro. I give you the great Kate Hamill. Well, we are so excited to have Kate Hamill on the show today. Uh, Kate has a BFA in acting from Ithaca College. Both an actor and a playwright, a dub, strong double hyphen, which we love on this show. Um, as an actress, she performed across the country and off-Broadway in critically acclaimed productions with companies like Bedlam Theatre Company, Syracuse Stage, as well as many independent films. And as a playwright, she's written some incredible plays and adaptations, including Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, The Scarlet Letter, Emma... Dracula, Vanity Fair, many, many more. She's been awarded a mantles full of awards and nominations, like being the Wall Street Journal's Playwright of the Year in 2017, a number of other honors. Her plays have been produced all over the country at places like ART, Oregon Shakespeare Festival, Guthrie, many, many more. For the past five years, she's consistently had two of the top 10 most produced plays in the U.S. And I'm going off script here, Kate, but just (laughs) anecdotally, I've heard before that at times you had the most produced play. You can tell me if that's not true or not. It's not backed up by science. I don't think I've ever been number one. I think I've been in... Like two, three, four. I've gotten to number five. People are giving you close enough. So people are like, she's like the most produced playwright. That's what people (laughs) say about you because it's so close to true. Um, Once you get that close, you can just... Welcome on the show. How are you doing today? Thanks. I'm so great. It's so good to see. Yes, yes, yes. I know. Um, um, It's been a while. It's been a while. It's been a long time. time. Let's dive into, I'd love to start where we start with everyone, which is like when you were around 16, 17, you're looking at schools 
you know, oh and I'd love to just like get into the mindset of what you were thinking back then, especially not of our students. You know, they see these great careers and these great paths people take, but it's like, what, what did you know back then of maybe this dual path that you might be taking? Did you think about playwriting at all as you went to Ithaca for BF acting? What were you looking at as you applied to colleges? Oh God, no, I was not interested in playwriting at all. I confess mm-hmm. um, at the time. And you know, when I was not to date myself wildly, but I will, I was 18 in 2001, so I must. This must have been like 1999. You specifically did. You went. It wasn't even a range. You're like, this is the my tree. Cut it in half. Here's where we are. Don't do the math, podcast (laughs) listeners. Um, So I uh, was very focused on just being an actor. That's Mm -hmm. all I wanted in the world. Um, Earlier on in my life, I'd sort of been more interested in the visual arts. But the minute I got sort of bitten by the acting book that's mm-hmm. all I wanted to do and I was very close-minded about it actually in a way that I feel in retrospect was not beneficial like I was like I don't want I don't want any cheating I don't uh-huh. want to <laughs> write my way in um but I didn't really see that as an option I was a bit of a lost soul as a teenager so uh-huh. if anyone listening felt that they have been or are a lost soul I was a lost soul lost soul in what way tell me what you mean when you say lost soul um, I, I grew up with a lot of family trauma, mm, which I've mm. had quite a lot of therapy to do. Mm, let's talk about it. The therapy. This is my wedding week. So Kate, I'm deep in the family trauma. <laughs> let's go into it. We can do a separate podcast. I recommend the therapy. Yes, so we do. People. Um, but uh, you know, when you're 16, 17, you're still in that situation. So mm-hmm. I had found, um, theater as a really welcome space to find catharsis uh-huh. for that trauma and also sort of an outlet um so i fell very deeply in love with it i knew i wanted to do it for school i did not um come from a background of like my parents bless are not theater people uh-huh. um there was a lovely woman who uh cynthia howell who ran the theater program at my very small school but there was no sort of like um access to uh, like audition resources or something like that. Um, I had taken some classes in like sort of college level theater classes um, over a summer at Ithaca College, which Mm -hmm. is where I eventually went to school. Mm -hmm. Um, But other than that, when I started thinking like, okay, I'm going to audition for theater classes, I, Aside from, and I guess I had taken, you know, some like um, teen acting classes at the Hangar Theater, which was Uh also in Ithaca, New York, um, where I grew up or near where I grew up and, um, and done some community theater stuff. But in terms of auditions, I definitely didn't know what I was doing Uh in retrospect. Um, But I I think I just busted out like yield, yieldy monologue book. Totally. Yeah. And I found some yieldy monologues and... uh, and worked out. They took you. They accepted you. They, they did understand. accept me. Yes, they yes. did accept me somehow. Um, and were you thinking then of like theater specifically? You know, when the BFA yeah. acting. Some people are thinking TV. Some people are thinking Broadway. But when I say theater, meaning like regional theater, you know, non musical theater, it seems like where you've made more of your your living. Yeah, I was thinking theater specifically, and that again, I just was. I was born uh, you know i was raised in a very small like farm town uh-huh. and uh the nearest big 
quote unquote big city was Ithaca uh-huh. and there was theater there. So I fell in love with that, but I had like literally no film and TV sort of wasn't even on my radar yeah. to be in as an actor until I was in college and my college blasts for all its many strengths did not have a big film TV right. um, training program at that point. Yep. So I don't think I even, I definitely didn't even take film and TV classes till I was like a senior. You were just resolved to be poor. You're like, I'm going to work in the I American was like, Regional I, Theater. I don't want to You know, I did think, I did think I romanticized. <laughs> and, I certainly romanticized the sort of like bohemian theater lifestyle at that it's time. It's really cool. It's fun. Yeah. Okay. So tell me a little bit about Ithaca. Tell me about sure. the um, experience of the four years. what did you learn? what did you take away from there? And how did that you know, as eventually this playwriting uh, um, bug is going to hit you, is that hitting sure. you in college, out of college? When did that start happening for you? Uh, so I, uh, when I went to Ithaca, it was quite a rigorous cut program. We mm. went in with 30 to the BFA program. And by the time we graduated or got through the cut program, uh, we got to 15. Mm-hmm. So it was a 50% cut rate. Um, I was very stressed mm-hmm. the entire time. Mm-hmm. Uh and um, there were some things about that that I thought were really uh, the thing that I thought was really useful. I had some lovely professors mm-hmm. and um, I learned some stuff that I feel like I still use to this day and some stuff that I certainly have um, let by the wayside. Um, the If I could sort of go back in time... Um, the we called the cut program was called review you were Mm -hmm. reviewed Mm -hmm. three times a year um you know the thing i don't love about that for me is an 18 and i was very young when i entered college i think i was 17 i was Mm -hmm. the youngest one of the youngest people um and straight from the farm so not that experienced um i uh i i it gave me a lot of fear Mm-hmm. And it took a long time to undo that fear in myself because even though I got through the review process and got my BFA, yep. I did not. Um, I, I sort of went through the first couple of years professionally um, trying to sort of get the right grade right. as opposed to just exploring things. Well, and and it's not, things. it does not incentivize risk taking and no. being willing to make mistakes. And, you know, no. even though I think the best version of those cut programs when they existed, the best version of them would not have necessarily, you know, come down hard on someone who took a good artistic risk and failed, but yeah. it feels like it instills that sense of like, I can't take any risks. I got to be perfect. And, yeah, of course, and I, was very, I, I was very young and, um, uh, like I would say the good thing about the program was it was extremely rigorous and it did mm-hmm. prepare me for a lot of rigor. Um, and again, I had some lovely professors who I still keep in touch with and I loved And um, But even then, no, I still wasn't thinking of playwriting. No playwriting I, yet. No but- playwriting. My, I was very, very good friends and later roommates in the city and in college with a woman named Janine Neighbors, who mm-hmm. is a quite a well-known playwright and now is quite a big TV writer producer. Mm-hmm. She co-created um, a show with Janelle Glover. And um, so Janine was the writer. Like mm-hmm. I was like, you know, that's a real writer. And mm-hmm. I, I really didn't. And then it was out of college by necessity. Well, um, so talk, talk to me about that by the necessity. Let's, let's get to the, sure. those first. Cause when I met you, I think yes. you, but then we're already we're playwriting. But this yes. is you were some years out of school, but yes. not many years. I think we're similar age. That yes. that 
you know, you were not the household name that you would become. Um, but what were the, we said the by necessity, talk to me about those first few years of like out of school. Are you doing survival jobs? What's oh, making you start writing? What's, how, how's it going with the acting world? How do you sort of, you're trying to find your way into this business. What was that uh, experience like? Uh, well, I, I, uh, you know, I did my showcase mm -hmm. and I had a little bit of interest from the showcase. And I got my equity card right out of school. I went on like a tour. Mm -hmm. And then I was working, I was working a series of survival jobs and doing like yep. off, 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 doing the auditions, yeah. Doing the little independent films and the student films. And I was doing okay as an actor. Um, but even before I was interested in the theater, mm -hmm. um, I was sort of, um, I've always been like a feminist that is more core to my identity. Mm -hmm. In fact, even than theater, I was the only 11 year old with a subscription to Ms. Magazine mm -hmm. story. Um, so I started getting really angry because mm. I was always in these rooms and this is around 2005, 2006 with like a uh, hundred other women, all of whom were really cool and talented and mm -hmm. great. And um, to play these characters who were always really tertiary to mm -hmm the male protagonist's experience. Mm -hmm. So they were someone's wife or girlfriend or prostitute. Mm -hmm. And there are some great roles for wives or girlfriends or prostitutes, but like so often it would be like one of those roles for like 16 mm -hmm. actual fleshed out human male roles. Mm -hmm. And I just was like, my, my acting is really in conflict with my feminism, mm -hmm. especially since like many people who go to, um, these programs I there when I went to school there were more women than men in the program yep. and all around me women were dropping out mm -hmm. especially like and at that point like the only people who were really getting hired were the good-looking white men mm -hmm. and like um no hate on good-looking white men but um, Jeremy Jordan would have been around your year Jeremy Jordan and I went to he was the year below me yes year below, yep. and like but Aaron Tveit and I were in the yep. same class there and no hate those to are, Aaron those are two very good-looking white no men no hate yeah. to Aaron or jo Jeremy they're yeah. lovely guys and also like so talented and yeah. like they deserve it um but I was so frustrated because I was just seeing women drop out of the business mm -hmm. um, on every part of the field because there were no opportunities for them. And if you're not given any opportunities, you can't possibly advance yep. your career. Um, so I was having an existential crisis, um, especially because I love the classics. You and yes. I met in pursuit the, of the classics. The classics right? And was, this is especially true in the classics. I mean, it's yes, true it's everywhere, but especially so much truer in, in the, the classics. classics. Yeah. And I was like, I just want there to be new feminist classics. Mm -hmm. And I went out to drinks with my friend, Andrew Snickles, who's a lovely actress. And uh, at that time she was uh, co-starting a theater company, which mm -hmm. we are both for the record, no longer a part of, but mm -hmm. at the time she was um, co-starting a theater company and we had a couple glasses of wine. I was of legally drinking age and uh, <laughs> I said, I want there to exist a new feminist classic. And I had been already writing a little bit. Uh -huh. um, and I taught writing. That was one of my day jobs. I had taught like, uh -huh. writing. Um, and I bet her $100 that I could write a play and we would both be in it. And that was my first. Wow. 
Wow. Your first commission. You got a hundred dollar commission basically. No, I wrote her a check for a hundred dollars. Oh, you Charlie. had to pay her? I her. said, I wrote her a check for a hundred dollars. And I said, if I don't get you a first draft in like six months, you get to check. Cash oh, so this. this is only a loss for you. You don't get the hundred dollars yes. if you do it. This is no. cool. it's not a bet. This is just it's a, a, it's a really good ankle. way to beat a deadline <laughs> is like consequence. Right. Especially when you don't have a hundred dollars to lose. Yes. And I did not yeah. have a hundred dollars at the time. And that is how I started. And much to I, my so surprise. Cool. And shock that became it's a whole dual career, and it it turns out you know I like the playwriting, so I have had a dual career. Ever and these and the specific interest in Jane Austen was were you already like a huge Jane Austen fan from the world, or or was that just like hey this is someone who writes things about women and I want a new American <laughs> classics and like did did you find it from that need in what you wanted to see in the American theater canon or was yeah. it like I was already interested in well I loved Jane Austen ever since I'd read her in the old farmhouse and she shares an interest in a lot of things I do which is mm-hmm. like the difference between the dictates of society and what our conscience tells us to do it's a lot of the inner why mm-hmm. lives of non-male humans mm-hmm. and it's a lot she's a proto-feminist so it's a lot about the patriarchy and at the time when i was going to write this the vet all stage adaptations about of her work basically were by men all the mm-hmm. most popular ones mm-hmm. and men have total right to tell these stories too i'm not like trying to exclude anyway yep. but i was like well that's not I feel like I have a young female perspective to bring to this young female writer. So I thought, okay, if I ever write another one of these, I'll write hers in order. And now I'm, I only have two left actually uh-huh. of hers, but I've also written a bunch of yes, you've branched out and other adaptations. But but I I would say branched out and certainly branched out beyond just um about Jane Austen and even just beyond just classical English literature or whatever. Yeah. But it does seem like I guess I'll let's talk about like you have this hit like it was a true hit. The yeah. first one you wrote was like you know hit the off Broadway world about as hard as you can hit it. Yeah. How do you approach that now in terms of those next steps of your career of going? What do I do next? And, and do I do another one or do I do something totally different? Because I don't want to get pigeonholed. How did you think about that in terms of like the way you were continuing to approach playwriting? Well, what's funny is I just try to pursue what interests me. So mm-hmm. um, that uh, goes all sorts of different places. And, and in fact, you know, like uh, later today, I have to call my agent and I have sort of like a schedule conflict later in the year and I have to decide mm-hmm. um, what, uh, which of a couple of jobs to take basically, which is a luxury and I'm yep. not complaining. Um, uh, I'm very grateful, but uh, it's often still hard for me to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. And I just try to do um, what most interests me and not worry too much about like where the zeitgeist is going mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. where I'm what is quote unquote for my career because I have found very much that like you have no idea what's going to hit or not hit right um, beyond you know sometimes you have to make decisions for your wallet and yep. sometimes you have to make decisions because they seem like good career decisions but you you really don't have any idea I've had I mean, certainly as an actor, we discover this, right? Sometimes yep. you're like, "This can be, this can be so fun," and then you're like, "It's like <laughs> pulling yeah. teeth all the Or you're like, "This is gonna be really hard," and then it's super fun. Yep. Um, and sometimes as a playwright, I've certainly incurred, encountered the same stuff. I've encountered stuff where I was like, "Boy, this is my career's over. This is gonna be a disaster," and it's a huge hit, and everyone loves it and does uh-huh. it. Uh-huh. And I've experienced like this. This one's gonna be really great, and that. <laughs> 
So, yeah. Like yeah. sometimes it just doesn't quite gel. It doesn't it? And what about like, I mean, I do think, especially on the scale that I would say we were then working and the, you're looking yeah. at like the regional theater world, like mm-hmm. a hit as an actor in regional theater would be like, I got a good review for this. Like, it's yeah. just not like, a you're not going to hit in the same way that I think you did succeed, succeed in hitting and, you know, plays being produced across, across the country. Was that, I guess, how did you deal with the, you know, I'm going to use the word fame uh, very loosely here. I know we're not <laughs> Azalea, but I mean, I think you hit it about as big as you can hit it in the American regional theater of it all. Like, yeah. how did that synthesize with like your vision of yourself and, and the future of your career? And like, like, did it change who, like in terms, I'm not going to say change. Now who, I'm like, a monster. Being, yes, like, no, but I mean, in terms of the, the way that you um, uh, were thinking about your artistry, because you were saying, I just want to write this play to, you know, have it produced and be in it and get to do all this stuff. But like, now you have much more possibility open to you in terms of what could be. Yeah, it's interesting because what I've found over the years as like, um, I mean, inconsistency, some of the thing too, like you're, you write the first one and then you're like, oh no, what if no one does my second one? And then uh-huh. you do your second one and you're like, oh no, what if no one does my eighth one? You know, mm-hmm. so um, it's been a big relief, Nunkumwood, that like it is, I'm very grateful that it has continued. Yep. Um, that being said, I kind of, I think the, my idea at the time before anything worked for me really, um, was that if I succeeded, then all my like insecurities and Uh self-doubt and, um, anxieties would go away. And for you, it worked. You're the only person it worked for, right? Is that what you're about to tell us? I am 100% secure. Once I had enough money, everything was fine. (laughs) No, I mean, um. I, I, it's still the same me. And yeah. it's funny because now, especially since um, it's been about 10 years mm-hmm. since I started writing plays. And now um, occasionally I, well, uh, I meet people who like, um, quote unquote, sort of grew up. They yep. uh, And I was a little bit more known. And when they're approaching me in a certain way, I'm like that, um, it's always so lovely and nice to hear. And I'm like, that person that you think has it all figured out uh-huh. is not me. I am yep. just myself, still the same little nerd I was yep. 10 years ago. It's so true. Um, I mean, so... our students, like many of them, we'll talk about this on the second half of the show, but uh, yeah. our, many of them do your monologues. And so yeah. like, to them, you're like, oh my God, Kate Hamill playwright. Like they're, not, <laughs> like they're not thinking of you like the farmhouse girl that you're describing yourself. You know, they're gonna be like, what are you, what are you talking about? That's not, she wrote this play that I'm using for my college editions. Yeah, you know, and it's it's funny because um, I worked with a lot of people who are fancy and have big words and are great. And they also, also are like, uh-huh. you know, they you're, you're probably the holes and you never totally go away and no amount of external validation can make that happen. Um, I am disappointed to remark, but the good news is you can give, that means you can give yourself the validation now and yes and therapy we're this is better help.com really helped me no i will say therapy was very for sure i want to talk a little bit uh especially about early on um, your sort of insistence on acting in your plays it's something i really admire about that especially (laughs) as the world is like heralding your playwriting 
that you held on, I think really successfully held on to the duality of your artistry. Yeah. As a, I mean, I just think it would have been easier in the way of like an American regional theater being like, great, so just take a seat behind the table. We'll cast it. We got the whole system. We got the, you know, how did that manifest for you? Obviously the first play you were writing to be in it, but yeah. then in continuing at different places to to act in your plays, obviously you can't act in every production. You're doing more productions than it's possible for you to be. Yeah. But like, what what was the conscious thought of that duality or, or did it just happen naturally? How did that happen? Well, again, that became like, I was like, I just want to do what interests me and mm-hmm. what um, challenges me and makes me happy. It is quite vulnerable to be in your own place um, because if people don't like it, they know exactly who to blame. Yep. And um, it is necessary to be extremely humble and uh-huh. extremely try to know yourself well and check yourself Uh um, because you do have more power than other actors. Mm -hmm. Um, So I always say to directors uh, that like, uh, if you know, Ghostbusters, the classic Ghostbusters, um, there's Dana and Zool, right? So at some point um, there is no Dana, there's only Zool. So for me, the act, the, because directors have to interact with playwrights in a different way mm-hmm. than they do with actors. Um, so I always say to a playwright, uh, a playwright to a director, um, do you want to talk to Dana? Or do you want to talk to Zool? Because uh-huh. at a certain point you'll leave and there'll be no Dana. There's only Zool. So uh-huh. once, you know, we're out of the plays open, I'm just an actor. Yeah. Um, when I have my inevitable mental breakdown with multiple personality disorder, uh-huh. you can trace it to this, but um, it, I like it for a variety of reasons. One is um, it keeps me humble. Uh-huh. Audition, continuing to audition and uh-huh. just be an actor keeps me very humble. Um, I like being part of an ensemble. I do not like um, feeling like some. Sometimes when you just come as a playwright, you're a little bit of an alien, uh-huh. and people are a little bit afraid of you. Yeah, this um, odd presence in the other side of the room. Like, what's she looking at? Is she yeah, changing what's she, it? What's she did, she did I not do that relying well? Um, and I don't like people to be afraid of me. Uh-huh. I want to, for better or worse, I want to be like one of the gang. Uh-huh. Um, so I like being in my own place because I can say to my actors, like, I am not asking you to do anything I'm not doing. If yeah. we have a bad show, I'm not flying out to, to peek yeah. it tomorrow. Yeah. Like, I'm going to be there in the arena with you. Um, so I do like it. Um, when I first started hitting... As a playwright, um, I had to learn the business of playwriting. That uh-huh. was very interesting. And when I first started out, um, I did not realize the power I had as a playwright, nor the response and the responsibility that came to that power. Uh-huh. I had um, a bad experience where uh, someone was uh, a collaborator was making rooms really toxic and Mm -hmm. frightening and I did not step in in a way I should have Mm. um, because I did not realize as a playwright I had that power and once I got out of that situation and stopped working with that person um, I have taken that responsibility really seriously Uh since then so I try really hard to make um, workplaces uh, beneficial and and processes safe an interesting duality, I mean, obviously the same thing with the director and an actor, mm-hmm. but an interesting duality as a playwright and actor that you, you are one of the gang, but especially if it's a new play that's being changed, yeah. you do also have power to like 
fix something. Like you can basically note an actor by being like, ah, I'm taking away that line. Like I'm, I'm <laughs> which an actor would never do to another actor. But like you do have the power to be like, you're not saying that the way I want you to say that. So I'm changing it. Well, that's that's why I rely these days. And again, I had an early scarring experience, but uh-huh. these days I rely really heavily on um, directors who I can really trust right. because I'm like I almost uh, if I'm in a play, I'm I'm never giving an actor a note. Never, of course, ever. Right. You, I they would know you would resist I that would temptation. Yeah. Yes, yes. The, the way to be the most the least popular person. Oh my gosh. Um, but if even if I'm not in a play, I rely very heavily on the partnership with the uh-huh. director. Uh-huh. And if I'm in the play, I am also relying on them to like catch things. And yep. I try very hard to think of myself as an actor as just another actor. So I'm yes. more likely to take my own lines away. Right. Of course. You're going to be like, that's just not working for you. So I'm going to change that. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, well, how does, as you're learning the playwriting mm-hmm. game and the business of it all, yeah. I guess I'd love to just hear like, how does it shift from, you know, God, I just want to be in a play and please, will you read my play? And that, that version of a hundred dollars to like, when you're, you know, I think if I caught this correctly, some of these things you've now been commissioned and, yeah. or these are collaborations where they're going, Hey, we're going to work on this together and build this. And, how does that affect sort of how you even decide? Because I feel like it feels like to me from the outside, a different decision to go, I'm going to write this thing from scratch because I want to yeah. versus what they what they want to be on their stage and what they think you're going to offer. How does that affect like these decisions you're going to have with your agent coming up? I mean, I, I think I realized like you have a finite amount of energy and you have mm-hmm. a finite amount of time so again you just have to go it's really easy especially when you start out in an acting background like actors so often and i think this is shifting too but at least when i was sort of coming up you just felt like you have to say yes to everything Mm -hmm. and um now i've really learned like you can't say yes to everything so you can just say like that's not the project for me thank you so much it just it's not it's not like I, I turn down things that I feel like this doesn't speak to me. I'm mm-hmm. not the right person for this. Like, or it's just not interesting me because I know I'm going to do a bad job. Yeah, what's not I'm not the right person for this mean? It, like, you, I don't have something unique or special to bring to it. Is yeah. that what you mean? Yeah, like, I, I don't I have don't a perspective have, or point of view. I don't have, like, a way into it. Mm-hmm. I don't have, like, a relationship with it. I It doesn't awake anything in me. There have mm-hmm. been one or two things where I was like, oh, I'm actively like um this just like that it 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 it's sort of like the only way i would want to write this is if i sort of did a takedown of it and that's uh-huh. not fair to do uh-huh. that project then yeah. to be like i'll give an example like i hate jane Eyre. i hate that book sorry uh-huh. jane Eyre listeners but like i don't it's not it doesn't have many jane Eyre fans who listen to this pod so there sorry you Sorry, I respect it, but it's like I just right. can't get there. So but whenever you're not going to do the mocking version no, of it, where, whenever yeah. I've been approached about Jane Eyre, I'm like, it's not cool. It's not really cool to do like a Jane Eyre the realm with just like screw, screw this, you know. It. Like so, I love I'm not that you said that. Do it. Yeah. I feel that way so strongly about some of these Shakespeare shows. Some of which I'm like, I agree, it's a problem. But like when you do it to show how much you hate the show, I'm like, yeah. well, why did I show up to watch? This? <laughs> you know, I'm like, I spent two hours so you could tell me you hated this play. Um, yeah. yeah, that's not that's not the dream. And it's um, also like it's hard to do a two-hour takedown of anything. Oof, I think. Yeah, and to be interesting. And luckily, we're not going to do a two-hour pod. We're going to take a break, <laughs> and on the back end of the break, we're going to do some deep dives into playwriting. We're going to get a little granular if we can. Wee! God forbid. Um, so back in a flash. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, we're back with mm-hmm. Kate Hamill. Um, and I want to start off by settling a question once and for all. I mentioned that many of our students do your monologue sometimes as pieces for their college editions. Do you believe students should be able to use your monologues as classical pieces? Yes. You say yes, because you think they're a new American classic. I, I Yeah, I think that they are perfect. If you're going to do a translation of a Moliere, which is Thank theoretically you. modern. Why yes. can't they do it? I, you can tell the audition <laughs> monitors I said that. I hate him. <laughs> so if, the, if they have judgment. Because I like, it's so funny because that was the example I used. I was like, Richard Wilbur does all these the Moliere's and he just died. But I'm like, yeah. if they're still alive today, is it allowed to be a classical piece? Can it be a classical piece if you can, I grew up with this human being? You can tell them I said yes. Kate says yes. Okay, Kate says yes. Charlie says it's iffy. <laughs> Those are all I'd say it's, it's skirting a line, I think. I would say if it's supposed to be... Um, in verse, probably you can't. Right. I don't, They're like, I we want a lyrical it. piece. I'm like, yeah, well, that's it's, I mean, it's, it's irreverent and wonderful, but I don't know if it's lyrical. Yeah. Um, yes. Okay, great. That was a joke start off. But I do want to dive into this specific genre sure. a little bit more. Um, and and I, da- I love to get a little bit more granular in terms of like your playwriting process, maybe specifically into adaptation, though I know that's a translation or, you know, I don't know mm-hmm. those things are different, but similar. Um, but I just love to start off. We go back a little bit sure. to those moments where you're writing the hundred dollar check. Uh-huh. You're trained as an actor. Yes. Obviously, you have an understanding of dramatic text. What steps did you take to go? Okay, now I feel equipped enough to write a full length play. I imagine you didn't just open a word doc and start writing, right? What did you do to go? I think I know how to do this, and specifically the adaptation, I guess. But even just the playwriting part of it, how did you get to that place? Uh, well, I started out saying like, what, what question like I wanted I knew what I didn't like so what I didn't like was an adaptation just like a copy and paste of the original I I, that is not for me I'm not saying people can't write that I'm just saying it's not for me um and I wanted it to be able to play to be a play that stood on its own I wanted to be really highly Mm -hmm. theatrical and celebrating the theatrical and I wanted to be an ensemble piece because having been an actor Nothing's mm-hmm. more of a bummer than when you're playing like spear carrier number mm-hmm. three and holding on that spear I, I, for hours while Hamlet goes on. So mm-hmm. I wanted everyone in a cast staff to carry roughly the same amount of weight. Mm-hmm. Um, and so first I thought, well, what's like the theme that I'm going to be exploring in this play? And for Sense and Sensibility, it was uh, how society judges 
people, especially women, mm -hmm. um, both for making quote unquote, the right decisions or not the right decisions. Mm -hmm. And I wanted us as an audience to really feel how um, judged these women are all, all times. So I was like, well, what if there's like a Greek chorus that gets us through the action mm -hmm. and they're a chorus of gossips. So they're just like watching everything and moving everything and talking to everyone blah, 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 and making judgments. And that is how I started that one. And I was like, well, and th that was, you know, my first play. And I feel like every play teaches you to write itself. And I've uh -huh. written new plays as well. But I come to every everything, whether it's adaptation or a new play, with a new play lens. So yeah. I'm always like, does this work in the play? It's, it's um, so cool hearing that, especially for a first play, how many, like, structures you already had, how many obstacles you put in front of yourself, or if you, you know, how many goals you already... Like, I feel in some ways... Like I, th I would think I'm going to just try to write a good play and I, and I hope it comes with the, the, the ensemble and I hope there's equal text and I hope there's stuff for everyone to do. But, you know, that but in some ways, I wonder if some of those we talk about sort of how structure can create creativity. If having mm -hmm. some of those tent po poles was helpful to going, all right, now I now I know what I'm writing toward. That means I'm casting yeah. actors to play six different parts and I'm thinking yeah. about those kind of things. Well, did you feel like that freed you up to have that th that much structure? I think so. I think it gave me something to grasp onto. And, you know, something that I've come to a little bit later in playwriting, I've worked with this wonderful director, Meredith McDonough, who's done a ton of new playwright, mm -hmm. a new play work. And Meredith always says, it's just everything's a draft. Like, let's try the, a draft of this, a draft of that. Mm -hmm. So my new thing is always like, it's just a draft. You mm -hmm. know, like, you're always going to be working on a thing. I say that to myself as an actor too. Like, mm -hmm. let's try it with this. It's just yep. a draft. Because sometimes I feel like I am an inpatient person. So sometimes I want to skip ahead to the part in the process where it's just perfect. Oh, uh -huh, you get it right. Yeah. <laughs> I got it right. I got mm -hmm. the A, you know. Um, uh, and instead, I just have to think of it as like, it's never going to be finished. Mm -hmm. And um so yeah, I do think the structure helped me some. I always start, that is a structure I always come to mm -hmm. um, if I'm doing a new play or an adaptation. Mm -hmm. um, and the well, great playwright Paula Vogel also, like I took a wonderful bake off with her uh -huh. and um, she was saying like, there are different structures you can cling to. And one of them is language, which sometimes I uh -huh. cling to. And um so one of them is theme, like what's the theme of this play? Yep. And so I often figure out the theme and let that help me figure out the structure. And sometimes the language helps me with the structure. Well, it's really cool also having that, uh, you know, sort of ensemble based goal mm -hmm. also is a way that you are linking your plays together. So it feels like a Kate okay. Hamill play, even though it may not be a Jane Austen play or it may not be, you know, if you, yeah. now if I'm writing about it, it's, I'm writing a new play, but it still feels like it lives in this kind of irreverent world. And it lives in this, you know, all some sort of, and I don't want to now uh, analyze your plays for you, but, but li it lives in a, a, a world that still will feel like a Kate Hamill play, you know, yeah. the way that uh, whatever the playwright is, you know, this kind of feels like a, in a Mar Moses play, even yeah. if it's about a bunch of different stuff that you're going to go, this is going to feel, you know, like you. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's, again, like uh, pursuing one's interests. Like mm -hmm. it's, it's about like, that's what I like. So that's tends to be in all my plays. Yeah. And I think that's true for actors too. You can see the style of things that they like mm -hmm. is often true from character to character. 
Totally. Um, and talk to me about so the literal writing process for you. I think that for yeah. a lot of people who are interested, but who are like, oh God, it's terrifying. I certainly yeah. would feel that way myself of like, are, are you writing at 11 p.m. after a few drinks? Are you <laughs> are you doing the dedicated, oh. you know, Alejandro, my friend who just wrote his first full length play. We're so proud of him. He's written a bunch of stuff. But he would do like early morning hours for himself because that's when he felt like he wrote. How, how did you get yourself to sit down and write this thing? You know what? I uh, I wish I could write after a few drinks. If I have a drop of anything, I'm not writing anything. Just asleep, yeah. I'm just asleep. Yeah. yeah um, uh, I I normally uh, commit to a deadline mm-hmm. and then procrastinate wildly. Yep. And then write. Um, I'm I'm terrified of missing my deadline, so uh-huh. I'm like, will write. Sometimes I'm writing in a panic. You right, knew what you're doing with that check. You wrote that check. You're like, yeah. you're writing yourself a check. I respond every to time. a deadline. You respond to a deadline. Um, yeah. But there was, so it is a panic. Like, it's not like you're like, I'm smart. And, and three hours a day over the course of six months, I write this play. You're writing it in a big panic. Oh, God, I got to get this out. Sometimes I'm, I, I actually am okay about like working backwards from the deadline. And uh-huh. um, one of my day jobs before I uh, didn't have to have a day job anymore, for which I'm very grateful. Um, was I was a copywriter and nothing mm-hmm. is more boring than writing copy, mm-hmm. let me tell you. And so how I would inspire myself to start on hours of catalog writing, for mm-hmm. example, um, is I would set a timer for 45 minutes and I'd be like, for 45 minutes, I'm not allowed to do anything else. Mm-hmm. I can stare at a blank piece of paper for 45 right. minutes or I can try to do something mm-hmm. and you'll be surprised. And then you take you take 15 minutes off. Mm-hmm. Then you go and you get a little snack and whatever you st- scroll through TikTok if you're like me, um, and then uh, 45 minutes back on. So mm-hmm. these days I'm pretty good at like, you know, if I know I have a deadline coming, I can do like okay, I'm gonna do like an hour and a half to. But aside from that last panic to like, oh god, the deadline is coming up, where I can do very long hours of writing. The maximum or in workshop settings or new play settings where I'm working very concentrated for like eight, nine hours. Mm-hmm. Most days, the most actual writing I can do is about three hours before yeah. I'm just writing gibberish. So right. it is by necessity a long, a long game. And but, do you separate out like the writing versus the editing? I know some people have talked about they're like, yes. I have oh, creativity, God, yes. bah, 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 and then that's the throwing the pain against the wall and then a different part of my brain, different part of the day I do editing. Are you, do you do that kind of thing? I highly recommend and with the caveat that like, you know, I always say to everyone like you should try to write something because even the worst play is better than building a bomb, you know, like, mm-hmm. it, like you, the, what's the worst thing that happens? You write mm-hmm. something and you're like, this is bad. A lot of people get so discouraged by the, this is bad that uh-huh. they quit. And that's why I'm like, don't worry if it's bad, just uh-huh. write it. Who cares? So it's crap. You know, like I write stuff all the time that I'm like, this is crap. And sometimes I'm right. And sometimes I'm wrong. So I, also, by I the way, tend- love a bad play. Like yeah. I, going to see a bad play that has like blood in it and something to say, even if you're like, there's a lot of technical issues. Oh this, the, there's God. no structure. But sometimes like, this was fascinating. This writer had something to say. Yeah. It wasn't good, but that's okay. Like I'll take that over like a really technically good play that was just like, had nothing to say. Yeah. I'll take a bad play over a cynical play any uh-huh. day. Uh-huh. Like a play that's just sort of like, I oh, wrote clever. this. Yeah. I wrote yeah. this. To, um, I write and write and write and write 
lay it aside Mm -hmm. for a while and then go back and edit because then you have more distance. Uh But I would find for me editing right away, I would never finish. Uh And so I'm like, I quite often will be writing things in the middle of the night. Like this is the dumbest thing I've ever written. Uh No one's going to ever read this. And if they do, I'd be so embarrassed. And then that's the thing that ends up staying in the play because it's Mm -hmm. the best stuff there. So don't judge it if you can help it while you're doing it. I love it. Well, now I'm going to make you try to judge yourself and you can feel free to pass this whole question. But if I were to make you talk about sort of your style, which I've kind of hinted at, and again- Retro. Use Retro, is that your answer? I said rut-row, like Scooby-Doo. But I mean, in terms of like, you know- I, I don't know what the right way to describe it. I'm interested to hear what your, your thoughts are. Like, you know, I think someone would say this is Jane Austen with, and then people would maybe say, it. they'll say it's modern or they'll say it's all the, you know, mm-hmm. all the different things. It certainly feels very today. It feels like your voice yeah. in the play. But like, do you give thought to like what that voice is? And, and is there any sort of thought of like, I want this voice to sound, you know, you said like a young woman, you know, versus mm. some maybe older men who have done these adaptations before yeah how do you think about style and your style of your plays i mean i i i leave the judgment of it to other people except right now you're going to do the judgment (laughs) the sort of categorization of it i um worry less about because uh, sometimes i feel like that probably is true and sometimes it probably Uh isn't true uh i i i just try to um leave like real you know Hemingway who obviously I'm not like the biggest Hemingway fan in the world but Hemingway said is like it's easy to write all you have to do is open your type like start up your typewriter and bleed Mm -hmm. so it's like I have you have to leave something of yourself on Mm -hmm. the page so I I am trying to make sure that I am pursuing what really activates me right. and hopefully other people will respond to that, but I'm trying to worry less about it. I can say as an overall thing, I like highly theatrical language driven, yep. um, big characters. Uh-huh. Um, there's lots, often a lot of like absurdist humor and high uh-huh. emotions. Uh-huh. And, um, a friend of mine who's a playwright said like, you know, your plays reflect you. And I would say all those things probably are pretty reflect true to you. me. Yeah. Um, and, and I want like them to- Not oh, particularly sorry. true. No, it seems like not particularly true. Though I, I'm not a huge Jane Austen fan or some of these other writers you've adapted, but it seems like you're not particularly interested and in, tell me if you disagree, of honoring their voice. Like you're honoring their play, but you're like, this is my voice. This is my uh, my version of it. Or is that- I think, not true? I think these things is a collaboration between myself and an author who's currently dead. So uh-huh. whether that's like Hawthorne or Austin or Alcott or like all these other people, Bram Stoker, uh-huh. like I, I'm just sometimes I'm I'm in conversation with the original piece, but you know, I'm always like you're, it's like I still have Bram Stoker's voice in my head. Or do I, is it more I'm writing with Kate's voice? I guess, yeah. I'm or writing as me, but I'm I'm in conversation with uh-huh. them. And sometimes I'm a little more like, like, to be honest, I, when I read Dracula, I was like, this, I was given a choice by Classic Stage yep. to adapt Frankenstein or Dracula. And when I read Dracula, I was like, this novel is raw misogynistic and uh-huh. raw xenophobic. And a lot of tellings of this story 
are really misogynistic and xenophobic. So I want to create something that is in direct opposition to that, but actually, which is taking the stuff that I like and sort of magpieing it. So Mm -hmm. I think of myself as an artistic magpie in that way. And there Mm -hmm. are authors who I'm like more fond of, Mm -hmm. but I think I am still magpieing. That's so well said. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of it because it's, I think you, you successfully avoid cynicism or takedowns of, you know, the misogynism or, you know, you're just like, seems like you're misogyny, I guess the word I'm looking for there. It seems like you are writing, uh, yeah, just from, from the place of what I positively wanted to be, as opposed to like mocking what it was. Yeah. I don't think it would be hard if I really hated something Uh because it's hard to create. Uh, I, I do believe in creating from a place of rage. I often create from a place of like rage or love, but if I really like hate, like this is a terrible example, but if it was like adapt run one of Donald Trump's speeches, like right. I would be like, I could never do that. Cause I right. hate him too much, yep. you know? Yep. Totally. Um, let's pivot to, I want to talk a little bit, a bit about the American regional theater sure. and what it is to sort of write for, the struggle um, that it's in right <laughs> now. Um, do you think about considerations? Because I would say early on, you know, you're talking about those ensemble and relatively big casts. I mean, a lot of these novels yeah. have big casts, right? Are you thinking about stuff like their budget for sets and cast sizes or any of those things as you think about how this could be producible, you know, in seasons that are trying to not spend crazy amounts of money because they're all in the red? Not really. I mean, I tend to, the, where I've been produced is off-Broadway and regional theaters thus far um so those do tend to be smaller cast things but it is a stroke of luck that that goes into my ethos which Uh is i like small cast things because i feel like they're more highly theatrical whereas a movie like every extra is their own Uh person um the i like the theater i love watching like really talented actors switch roles it's really exciting to me so it is a happy coincidence, yep. thank God. But I will also say, like, if I am creating a piece for a theater company, um, I like, if at all possible, to create it really, like, I will go to their space and I will try mm-hmm. to, like, see a show and I'll try to be like, what's, like, the spirit? So uh-huh. when uh, Pride and Prejudice, the first production was at Hudson Valley Shakespeare Festival where we both worked, and I knew that, tents culture very Uh well and i knew Uh that tent and i was like okay i'm gonna write this with that in mind Mm -hmm. and so it became this like farce was part of the idea of the farce behind it and then like other productions beyond that they're going to adapt it they're going to if it speaks to them they're going to use it as they need but often i'm sort of tailoring it in the same way that when I'm in like a casting process and I'm uh-huh. casting people to be in world premieres, which is where I'm most involved is New York city productions and world premieres are where I'm most involved yep. um, directly or first productions. I'm looking for people who I'm actually going to be like tweaking the part to their uh-huh. energy. I want to write to this voice and then yes, other and people I want like other their thing. input so yep. I can like, you know, like, and other people, I want it so other people can play that part, yep. but no one's going to be quite them. Right. So that's why I, you know, it's always interesting to go see other people's world premieres. And I always recommend people because I'm like, there's something about if the writer was there, uh-huh. you're seeing someone who the, 
the role is tailored to them. Yeah, they've world. cast this person on purpose or they've, they've yeah. been part of the cast. And so it doesn't mean they're always like the best that's ever going to play that role, right. but there's something irreplaceable there, I think. I love it. And, and it seems like more of your plays, I mean, I, don't, I haven't seen every production, but it seems like more of your plays do tend to work well on a low set, you know, yeah. creative props. Like it doesn't seem like you're saying we need a ton of spectacle. No. Cast are the spectacle, and I, I often say in the forwards of my play, like their heightened language plays mm-hmm. too, is a something I do a lot. So I'm also like, I want it to be something they can scale up or down. But yep. my taste is more of the audience filling in the imagination yes. because I do think that's more theatrical and playful yep. as opposed to film where everything's perfect and every teacup looks just like it would. Um, so, and I don't like a lot of fuss in terms of like my I hate when it's like okay let's move a giant set on and yeah. a giant set off it's just perfect for me, costumes yeah yeah for me the is like I don't love it yep. so um it's my aesthetic and I am lucky that that happens to be a little bit uh, heightened language that means another argument for why they can do it for classical monologues it's becoming less iffy heightened language I so agree you tell, you tell those these people, people auditioning. Well, I listen to this podcast. Yeah, and Kate Hamill said. Okay, let's said. play our game. So okay. since you were known for making classical literature contemporary, I thought uh-huh. we'd play a game in making contemporary things classical. Okay. This might go well or terribly. We're gonna oh, no. So I'm going to throw out some contemporary works of fiction. Okay. And you're going to try to rename or retitle it in the style of Jane Austen. Uh-oh. So you can interpret this however it means to you. I had Dakin Matthews do this for his career, like in the style of Elizabethan sub-bullets. It was like the most okay. lamentable tale of whatever, right? But, you know, we're living in the pride and prejudice world, the sense and sensibility sure. world. You can take it into, if you want to just do a single name like Emma, whenever it feels right to you. Right. I'm going to give you an example if it's helpful. I've retitled my favorite TV show of all time, The West Wing. I've retitled it Aspirations and Arrogance. Oh, that's Like Pride and Pride's Aspirations and Arrogance. Gives you the sense of what West Wing is, but, you know, there you go. Okay. You also are allowed to pass if any of these are things you don't know. Though you're welcome if you're like, I kind of know what Game of Thrones is, even though I've never seen it. You can take a shot if you want. Okay, are you terrified? Are you ready to play? I'm scared, but I'm ready. I'm asking you to be on the spot creative. This is... (laughs) I'm sorry. Okay. okay, we're gonna start off relatively easy. Some TV show rounds. I've already given you the first one. It is okay. Game of Thrones. So, what is Game of Thrones renamed in a Jane Austen style title? Shocking familial relations. Shocking familial relations. They sure are. Never, never trust a blonde was the other one for Game of Thrones. That's that's very true. All right, Succession. What would we go for with Succession? The Americans are in trouble. <laughs> the Americans are in trouble. I like that you're giving me a British. The colonists are revolting in every way. The colonists are in trouble. Okay, what about the White Lotus? If we're going to rename the White Lotus. The colonies are revolting. It's a theme. It's a little series here. All right, what about uh, Breaking Bad? Stick to tea is a stimulant. (laughs) I feel like the queen is naming all of these. (laughs) Some tea. Sticks to tea. Okay. All right, we're going to go movie round. Oh, Um, no. We're going to go Titanic. How would you rename (laughs) Titanic? Never cross the pond. Never cross the pond. That's a good. Or, or uh, let's say, let's let, or uh, um, uh, some lesser sons inherit unexpectedly. <laughs> yes, that's that's what that's what we do. That's what we do. Let's do Apollo thirteen. What would you say for Apollo thirteen? Good heavens. Good heavens. That's good heavens. Yeah, that's where they go. I guess. Um, what about for your wonderful husband, Jason O'Connell, Batman? What would you do for Batman? 
unhealthy rodent fixation. Unhealthy rodent. Men will do anything rather than go to therapy. <laughs> that is true. That is sadly yeah. true. All right, great. That was enough creativity. <laughs> that was not easy. A short round of just being funny here. You did wonderfully. Um, what do you think about your the future of this industry? And maybe especially if we talk about the American theater world, you know, mm. where I think you're really connected. And I think which feels like in a lot of turmoil right now. A lot of people are talking about it. Oh, yeah. Different, articles and different feelings about, you know, what is the future? How is it sustainable? How do you see, you know, 10 years from now, what does the theater world look like? I, I mean, I think if I had the answer for that, Charlie, they would make me the mayor of theater world. The, the, is that something you could be elected to become is the mayor? I don't of know. Theater world? They would, they would correct it. Um, uh, they would create it just for me. Um, I don't know. And the the comforting answer about that is nobody knows. There's a lot of existential crisis. I have fears and I have hopes. Mm -hmm. My fear is um, there is justifiably a lot of fear about what's going to happen to institutions. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a total justifiable fear and we should be afraid of that. But I am most afraid of um, brain drain from the field that mm-hmm. people will not enter the field because mm-hmm. they feel they cannot afford to, or they won't stay in the field that mm-hmm. they are. And so I have fears. Um, I also have a fear that in a misguided um, attempt to sort of woo back audiences from a world that is now gone, mm-hmm. uh, that people will run back to um quote unquote, safe shows, Uh but no art form has ever been revitalized by running back to the past. Uh And I do feel for a wide variety of reasons that audiences are aging, the economy is scary, um, and people got out of the habit. Um, We are in a bit of an existential crisis, but I do feel like the thing that you can point to is we spent a couple of years understanding the value of what it meant to have community together and we should be able to value that in a new way and Mm -hmm. theaters have to um, really make a case for why they are events Mm -hmm. worth being with your community and catharsis about it's easier said than done the lack of government support is a real problem so um I'm always like, call your, you know, senator. Call your mayor of Theatertown. Call your mayor of Theatertown. My hope is I do think it is like, there's a lot of really exciting theater being made right now. Uh I went and saw Fat Ham and I thought it was just like the most wonderful thing. And I With MTCA coach Calvin Smith, no big deal. Oh my God. He was fantastic. He was so wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, like, oh, so good. I've seen so many things that I just thought were just wonderful and really exciting. Yep. Um, uh, and so we do have really wonderful, th- um, uh, wet brain. I loved mm-hmm. wet brain. Mm-hmm. Like what a fantastic play. And so sort of genre breaking. There's so many things I've seen that I thought were really exciting and wonderful. Yep. And so I feel like there is a lot of hope. I think that there are great people working in theaters who Mm -hmm. want to create good theater, who um, there are great institutions who want to like push their audiences and also welcome their audiences and cultivate new audiences. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what's going to happen in 10 years. I'm hopeful that we cannot be dragged back into the past, but for every 
I, I read this really great article and I've been doing all this reading on the French Revolution for for a play, basically. Um, yeah, not just for fun. That wasn't just- Not only, just for fun. I just wanted to go uh, deep like, on it. You know? Basically after any big social change mm-hmm. and we just went through a pu- or social crisis and we just mm-hmm. went through this very traumatic thing, which by the way, we all don't like to talk about, which is not healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's going to be- uh, a, so a big revolution and the mm-hmm. there will always be one and the only question is which way the revolution will turn so mm-hmm. i think the mistake would be for us to try to just run back to the old mm-hmm. world because it's not going to happen mm-hmm. and the way to go forward is to just try new things all the time but mm-hmm. that is it is really hard for theaters, understandably, to want to try new things when they are in total existential crisis. So um, I always say to people who are just starting out in the field, hey, it's a scary time to enter the field. I will not lie to you. The good news is everyone else is scared too. No one else knows what's going to happen. And you have a lot of new ideas because you are new. So you can provide a lot of leadership and you can bring new ideas to the field because no one else knows what's going to happen either. It's something I hear more. I mean, I've never heard it as much as in the past couple of years from college faculty (laughs) that Mm. the way they are pitching their students is not, we know what the industry is, but you're going to tell us what the industry is where we don't know what the TikTok of it all and how that's going to affect, but that you're going to, we're going to create a new industry together. We'll try to help guide you. But it's interesting. There's like a, there's a humility, I think, coming from a lot of college faculty going, I don't know. I don't know exactly what the jobs are going to look like, what the landscape's going to look like, but we're going to create that together. And I, for one, am super grateful to Gen Z and beyond who I mm-hmm. feel like have opened my mind in ways. I do a lot of like anti-harassment work within mm-hmm. the union and anti-abuse work, um, activism work. And uh, I think part uh, when I was coming up in the business, it was unfortunately and wrongly just beaten into something to us as something you had to sort of like watch out for and tolerate. Uh-huh. And it was Gen Zers yep. and the younger people who were like, Hey, it's not okay for this to happen right. in a workplace. Yep. And I am inspired by how little they tolerate a uh-huh. bad behavior. And yep. I think that that is like, that needs to happen. Yep. Totally agree. Um, tell yes. us a little bit. You mentioned some of the um, you're doing some French Revolution research. Tell us a little yes. bit about what you're working on. What are we catching next from Kate Hamill? I have a couple of things coming up. Um, I have next um, month in San Diego at a theater called Signet Theater. Mm-hmm. I have one of um, my earlier plays um, called The Little Fellow or The Queen of Tarts. Uh, tells all about a based on a true story of a woman who is a high class courtesan in 19th century England, who then turned around and blackmailed all Mm -hmm. her rich and powerful clients. Mm -hmm. Um, A woman named Harriet Wilson that is going up at Signet theater in San Diego. Um, I, these are the world premieres. I have other plays going around, but these are the ones I'm more involved in Mm -hmm. at the moment. Um, The Odyssey is, I'm having a two week workshop at ART and there will be a public showing of that very Mm. first time public reading Mm. of the whole thing. And it's a 20 hour reading or how long is this going to take? This is a two, yeah. (laughs) How can you, I'm just saying. I don't know yet, Charlie. Odyssey in two Um, hours. My God, let's find out. Chakiwuji is playing Odysseus, which is Mm. very exciting. And my friend, Mm. uh, 
Andrus Nichols. Is Fantastic playing, actress. Yeah. Yes, Penelope. This is all very exciting. Um, and that's going to have a its first public reading um, the 19th. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then uh, a, I have um, the world premiere of The Scarlet Letter is going up at Two River Theater. Yes, yes, Thanks yes. Thank you very much. Uh, I can say they're going to be loud. Fun surprises in that one. Oh, um, fun surprises. And uh, the directors on these projects are uh, Robbie Luffy for uh, The Little Fellow, Shauna Cooper for The uh, Odyssey, and Shelley Butler for Scarlet Letter. And then, yeah, I'm working on some new plays. I have some plays in development. And you're about to tell your agent what, what the next actual steps are. So we can't hear that yet. You're going to have a <laughs> no, conversation. No, I'm, I'm about to enter in conversation it. with my agent about what I should do next. Um, um, speaking of what we should do next, yeah. you gave a little bit of an advice there, but I'd love to just say in sort of summation here, um, if there were a young actor out there who kind of wants to be a young Kate Hamill wants to grow up and be you and, and, you know, you can do better. <laughs> no, I don't believe that's true. Um, what advice would you have for them? So what would you tell to that young actor, that young person, you know, or the parent of such, if a lot of our listeners sure. are parents, like what advice to sort of get a Kate Hamill like uh, career? You know, the number one thing that I would say is at least like give yourself space to make mistakes, give yourself space to fail collect rejections this is a business where you will be rejected a thousand times so try taking that as part of your job to be rejected if you are being rejected that means that you are going putting yourself out there if you're failing you're putting yourself out there what would be more that's not failure that what is failure is not trying mm-hmm. um i tend to think you know and try a lot of different things. Um, I, as I, I'm still very much work in process, but I constantly these days, I'm always trying to do things that I think I'll be bad at. Like, um, I took a painting class, which was really interesting in preparation for trying to, for writing a play. And like, I did a puppetry class to try to work for this show I'm working on. And, um, to let and I was like I don't know if I'm going to be any good at this mm-hmm. stuff but it is really important to not put too much stress on any one audition if you get into the right school if you get the right role because it's going to be a marathon mm-hmm. and you you have no idea what's going to work out or not so when I was younger I definitely put a lot of pressure on everything and I think it shut me down for a long time mm. in terms of, and, and it shut me down for a long time. in terms of, I was afraid to fail. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, fail now, fail big, fail yes. in a million ways, make, take a lot of risks because if you get a little bit higher profile, it, it doesn't get easier. It gets a little more scary. So uh-huh. you might as well do, you know, crazy uh, stuff now. I love, I've never, I've, I've never heard it put quite that way of like rejection as a version of, it means you're putting yourself out there successfully. Yeah, it's part of your job. Yeah. And you do think people often get to a certain point in their career where they only have yes people around them and oh they're not actually being vulnerable anymore. And you go, and that's when the art starts to die. That like, if you're actually putting yourself out there vulnerably, that's, you're doing something I think right. That means, I, my personal ethos is like, if I'm not getting rejected a little bit, 
mm-hmm. or I'm not failing a little bit, I'm not pushing myself. You're not anymore. pushing hard enough. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Just like a, our muscular and, failure in our workouts, you know. And, <laughs> say our exactly. workouts, we both lift a lot of weights. I'm, I, know, we yeah. and I also, no, and my other advice would be like, actually build a life that is, mm. has space outside of work. I mm. am a, I am a workaholic, mm. but I have benefited a lot from being like, there are things I do that have nothing to do with the work mm-hmm. because A, it will make your work better, but B, it is a way to build long-term endurance in this career, which mm-hmm. if you're really serious about it, you'll need the endurance mm-hmm. and find good classes. I can't, and that's part of finding failure is like, mm-hmm. I still take classes and I find it really helpful for a safe place to fail. And sometimes if you're a perfectionist like I am, you feel like, oh, no, like, what if I fail in class? Good. So you fail in class. That's mm-hmm. how you learn. Mm-hmm. Or coaching. I did a lot of coaching when I was early, when I was younger. And I still do coaching. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to play, like, a big role, I still do coaching on it. Mm-hmm. I love it. This is so much good good advice. We only need one piece, but we'll take three off the piece of advice. Um, I can talk endlessly. As you know, people can follow you at katastic29 if they insist on following you on Instagram, it seems. Yes. Um, I post otherwise... a lot of pictures of my dog. We, we love it. And, and you'll get to hear about all the great uh, projects. You can't can't miss a Kate Hamill show at your local regional theater. It's going to be there soon enough. Um, Kate, thanks for the time today. This was such a joy. Oh, my God. What a pleasure. Anytime. Oh, yeah. I hope you enjoy that episode with Kate. Um, She's a really special human being, I think. And I I really love getting to hear different perspective of artists, right? Sometimes we have Broadway musical theater performers. Sometimes we have an off-Broadway slash regional theater icon like Kate. Uh, And I just think there's a different tenor to the artistry that I think is really helpful to just hear some different paths, you know, especially as you're trying to navigate your path to be like, do I sound more like a this kind of person or a this kind of person? And just seeing all the different ways you can be successful in this business. Um, I'm going to do a few quick takeaways, which I think are probably going to lead to a long total outro. So strap on, enjoy, you know. Um, first, I just want to talk a little bit about cut programs. Um, you see how much the college landscape has changed when you hear students talk about cut programs like Kate did. Um, Kate is really like my generation. We're a couple years apart, but we're in the, basically the same generation. And they were already fading pretty quickly at that time, but have now really all but disappeared. Uh, for those who don't know what a cut program is, it used to be a pretty popular way to run a program, which is a school would over-admit into their freshman class, and then at some point, say maybe the end of sophomore year, they would have a required cutdown to see who would continue in the program. So they might admit 40 students, and then by junior year, each class would be 20. Now, I think it was brutal back then. I mean, it's, it's kind of awful in any way you do it. But in its day, it came from a world where there wasn't this rigorous college audition process on the front end. So they would just admit a much higher percentage. And then the big cut happened when it's like time to get serious. You're 20. Do you want to do this or not? Right. But once the process get started getting so competitive, right, it just became untenably cruel to have to go through this lengthy and grueling audition process at 17, 18, and then to be told two years later, after spending all that money, that you couldn't continue in the program you were in. I mean, they, they quickly went from being a very normal standard practice to all but being run out of existence. You know, it, that, and that was in the space of like, 
a decade. I mean, a little more than a decade, really, from, from basically being pretty popular to really no longer existing. In my first days of coaching, it would be like one of the number one questions we would always get as kids were building their list. They're like, please, no cut programs. And that continued to, to happen even as they became extinct. But it was clear the customer was saying, we really don't want this. And I think the colleges adapted, which uh, they, they so often do. Blessedly, it's not even a fear for most of our students and parents anymore. As finally, I think word has really spread out there that they are out of favor and then now really are, are, are extinct. Which of course is to say that you, it's not that you couldn't ever be cut from a BFA program today. I mean, there still are people who get cut from programs, but today it would be because the faculty felt you weren't keeping up with the level of work or you failed a class or there's some other infraction that you did and not because there was like a required number that they needed to shave down to. I mean, the closest thing I think that really still does exist today is, you know, there are schools where you will audition in the sophomore year or maybe at the end of your freshman year for the BFA part of the program. So maybe you're, you're admitted to the BA and then you're going to be in the school, but you may or may not be in the BFA. But that also re isn't really a cut in the same way that it used to be since it wasn't something you ever were officially a part of, right? For those programs that you'd be entering in, and it would be with the understanding, I don't know for sure that I'm going to get this BFA in musical theater if that's your goal, or I won't be in the musical theater certificate program or whatever that is. But just crazy how quickly things change. I guess that's my, my point out of all this was in the time I've been doing this, which is, I guess, almost 20 years now, um, it went from being still really kind of being around to like not at all, not even a, a whisper on people's lips in the same way. Uh, the other thing, or one of the other two things I wanted to highlight um, from this interview was just the way that Kate talks about her productivity. Something we were just chatting about with our students at the recent mock of like, how do you find your own process of rehearsal that is sustainable and realistic for yourself? Kate talked about doing like 45 minutes on and then 15 minutes off, but for a maximum of three total hours. You know, and that's for writing. So that is different than the practice of acting or, or performing that you might do. So if you're rehearsing your monologues, it could probably be a lot shorter, right? We often talk about, can you dedicate at least an hour a day to your college prep when you're going through this process, you know, while, while you're in this, that senior year especially. And that hour could include applications, it could include essays, a, a coaching session, or maybe it's your private practice. But for those maybe who are a little more type A, it might be helpful to, to separate it out a little bit, right? If you're the kind of person who's just going to do all the box checking, all the essays and applications and get the, the tedious stuff done and push off your artistic work, could you do 30 minutes, maybe even just 20 minutes of artistic work, true artistic work a day, right? Whether that's 30 minutes of singing or work on your monologue or it could be stretching or, or strength building if you're you know doing some Pilates or whatever to work on your dance. And, and this really, really applies to our alumni students out of college, too. You know, I'm speaking specifically for the college process, but those in college and out of college, too, it is so easy to focus on the kind of marketing aspects of yourself, right? My career stalling because my social media is not good enough or because I need to work on my website or I got to contact more agents and managers or I got to make sure I'm reading every breakdown because how am I going to know what's out there? And of course, that stuff is important, but are you spending time on your craft as well? Maybe it's not every day for you by the time you're an adult and you've been trained and you really feel like you know what you're doing, you have a practice sort of in place, but are you doing something multiple times a week to kind of work on your artistry? Do you have scheduled time in your actor's gym where you're singing or you're putting yourself on tape or reading new plays or whatever it is that's most relevant to your current artistry? If you're getting lots of auditions to work on, I think that's fantastic and that can be a nice part of the artistic work that you're doing, of course. And if you're not lucky enough to be getting them regularly, how do you create that for yourself, right? How do you create the regular practice of auditioning if that's something that you want to get better at? 
are you getting in, into class to work on that? Great. And I do also think, you know, that's sort of the skill of auditioning. I think it's worth distinguishing the craft and the practice part of auditioning from the art itself, right? What's fueling your creative and artistic soul? If you're really lucky, maybe there's the occasional audition where the side itself is kind of creatively stimulating. But more often than not, if you're looking at a guest star for a TV show, it's not necessarily improving you as an artist. You know, it may be helping you with how to audition for TV, which is important, but is it really improving you as an artist itself, you know, in terms of continuing to nurture and, and fan that flame? You know, it's one of the very scary things when school is over. Now, all of a sudden, you're in charge of that upkeep of the artist in you because you don't have a faculty advisor. When you're in school, it's so nice because someone goes, you know what Charlie really needs to work on? And then they'll give you that scene to work on. Or, or they'll really say, this semester, I'm really going to push Charlie to be more physically in his body because I feel like it's something he wants to work on, right? You have someone doing that for yourself. As soon as you're out of school, you don't have that anymore. So you've got to be the one to go. Well, with my friend group, I certainly can ask other people, is it, you know, what do you think I need to work on if you have people that you can, you can trust in, in, in that role? Or, of course, you could have teachers if you still want uh, that kind of direct feedback. But so often it is just about motivating the things that you know. You know you got to keep up this vocal tech. You know you got to keep up um, this skill set that can lag for you if you don't spend a lot of time doing it. And you're the one in charge of actually making sure it happens which dovetails nicely into that last mini takeaway I want to do, just being about the way Kate talks about rejection, which I really like. I said a bit of it in the episode, but there's something so beautiful about seeing rejection as a good thing, getting that active rejection as a sign that you are putting yourself out there, which means you are succeeding. I'm sure this thought has been summed up a lot of times, you know, in kind of some trite way of like, you miss all the shots you don't take, or if you're not failing, you're not trying, right? All of which I would agree with. But I think the specific way that Kate talks about it is really interesting and, and I think helpful. You know, we see this a bit in the college process. Normally it's a, a student or a family trying to finish early so they don't have to deal with too much rejection because it's very hard to put yourself out there and get rejection. And this is absolutely pervasive in the professional world. If you are constantly putting yourself out there, it does get easier to deal with a rejection. You hear that and it's true. Artists do get better at dealing with rejection, especially if you keep yourself in a constant state of it. But I will say, as you age especially, the farther you step away from that constant rejection, the harder it is to step back into it. And when I say age, I could mean 26. I'm not talking about getting old, old. I just mean like, as you spend a little time out of school, you're not forced to constantly be auditioned. You're not forced to step into those EPAs. You could be hitting 28, 29 and go, I'm not really able to keep doing this anymore, right? To keep our ever-present dating metaphor in, uh, in fashion here, right? you can imagine getting out of a 10-year relationship, how hard it would be to hit that dating pool again, and how different that is than you know a few months of a casual fling and you're back on the apps, right? Because you're like, I'm still in the swing of what it is to get rejected, and it's awful to get out there and have someone say, I don't like you. I'm going to stand you up for all the horrible things that happen in dating. And of course, that happens in the auditioning world too. It's, a, it's more no's than yeses almost always comedians talk about this a lot like stand-up comedians they try to never get too far from doing stand-up material on a stage because they know the longer they stay away from that terrible awful fear of truly bombing the harder it will be to get back up there right there's that active muscle of vulnerability of putting yourself out there and inviting rejection that you just have to keep limber 
if you stop stretching it, it can get tight. And if it gets too tight, it can be hard to loosen up again. I've seen that in older actors and it can be really hard to witness. So if you're in the throes of painful artistic rejection as you hear this, maybe it's a pre-screen no, or you're not getting the part you wanted in your college production, maybe take a little bit of heart and a little bit of solace that you are still putting yourself out there and you are sensitive to the pain of that rejection. You are alive and still doing it. Well, that's it. Another episode in the books produced by the great Megan Cordier, who is always doing it. I hope you enjoyed Solvay came in at the end. I was going to re-record, but I just thought I'd leave you a little bit of her voice in the end of that takeaway. Um, follow us at mappingthecollegeaudition.com. Check out MTCA at mtca.nyc. And if you're coming to Pittsburgh Unified this week, you can hit me up on my personal subscribe button if you can find it. To my young artists out there mapping their journeys, Dragons and depravity. That was my Game of Thrones answer. Or do you like better Dinklage and Dirty Bits? Give me your own in the reviews or whatever you're supposed to leave me on the thing. We'll see you next week. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.